Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk about the Kingdom of God, and we're going to start in Romans, because that was a letter of Paul to the Romans, actually to some of his own relatives who were in Rome at that time. And he was talking to them about some of the things that they have to safeguard and watch themselves for, because society gets itself into trouble. And society at that particular time in history was in a great deal of trouble. Rome had risen to a pinnacle of success over a period of about 500 years, beating all foes just about. They didn't always do that. They actually had some serious setbacks when the Jutes invaded Rome and and demanded a ransom. Why? Because Rome was flexing its muscles where it really shouldn't. And Rome got a sense of law and justice and judgment that was pervasive in their society for periods of time over certain generations. But with each successive generation, things would change. People say that it only takes about three generations for a successful family to go into bankruptcy. Now, of course, we know there are, there are families that have exceeded that expectation, but they, they have morally often gone into bankruptcy. And their extreme wealth uh, has sustained them for generation upon generation. But that, too, will change, especially as we enter into this global society. Before, when societies would raise up, like the Anasazi, the Babylonic people, the Asurus of Indus Valley, uh, the Greeks, the Romans, the Carthaginians, these different societies that raise up, with a certain pinnacle of success and order, and then they collapse, they collapse for a reason. There's always change that takes place in society. And the ability of society to flex with that change is always, always dependent upon the freedom that is pervasive or not pervasive in that society. In other words, if there is little freedom in a society, its ability to change and adapt decreases because without freedom, there is little personal responsibility. Without personal responsibility, people become inured. They become rutted in society in in a pattern of behavior, and they lose that flexibility of society that is necessary during catastrophes. And catastrophes throughout the history of mankind have come in the form of geopolitical catastrophes, you know, wars and rumors of wars, and also geological and meteorological changes. People are worried about weather changes, you know, global warming, and people are talking about polar ice decreasing. Well, polar ice is also increasing. Their snowpacks in some areas are immense beyond anything uh, that existed. Now, you can go to Greenland and you find Planes that landed during World War II buried hundreds and hundreds of feet underneath the ice because of the pack increasing. At the same time, they say, oh, well, the this, that. And you wonder, who who are you to believe? I mean, right now, 
where I live, it's well below zero. <laughs> so <laughs> global warming is something we would almost start praying for. But uh, the reality is, is that change takes place. And people are either ready for that change or not. They're prepared for that change or not. And how do you prepare for change? You, you become flexible yourself. As individuals and as societies, man is a social creature. Rome was about to undergo changes, major changes. It already changed a great deal. First Roman emperor was Augustus Caesar, and whose real name was Octavius, but he became this Augustus Caesar. That was in office, and altered the society even more so in this wrong direction that that Rome began to go years before, and moving away from the Republic into a centralized, autocratic, politically and civilly controlled society, where even religion was controlled by the civil government. In other words, religion being the how you provide for the benefits of your society. That was now done through civil altars, civil controls, civil welfare programs, where sometimes half of the Roman population was receiving a government dole subsidy, you know, what we would call receiving a government check. Half of their society at times was doing that. Actually, it's not much different today in America. Societies often sustain itself by charity by community, community helping the other people within their society. Societies that grow up with that idea and attitude remain healthier, more flexible societies. Societies that depend upon a central authority to provide those progressive benefits of society become less flexible. And Rome was about to change, go through severe economic, geopolitical, and even geological changes in their society, many of which were due to this direction that their society had taken. Nero was one. Nero bankrupted the Roman government in a short period of time. Huge amounts of funds disappeared. But more than that, he squandered huge amounts of funds. And he undermined the Roman denarii coin, which led into inflation. He actually took the silver out of the Roman denarii. All these things were things that people decided to do, people in power decided to do, and the people in society who had less and less power because of greater and greater dependence upon the central civil government of Rome could do little or nothing about it. Christians were doing something different. They were becoming less and less dependent upon these social welfare programs of Rome. As a matter of fact, in Judea, when the Jews got the baptism of Jesus Christ and began to follow the ways of Jesus Christ by the thousands on Pentecost. These are Jews accepting Jesus Christ, receiving him and looking to him as a titular king who was giving them back their liberty so that they could live by the perfect law of liberty. They were all cast out of the social welfare systems run by Herod and the Pharisees through civil political government buildings such as the temple, which was a religious temple, 
In other words, a temple that took care of the obligations that you have to your fellow man, but it was also a civil temple in the fact that the offerings to it were now compulsory under the authority of the civil government, the Sanhedrin, which had come about during the reign of Herod the Great. And to some degree, the there had been a precedent for this back with the Hasmoneans, which was about 160 years before, and that general error, where the whole of society began to fluctuate away from the principles that Moses had tried to teach them and the principles that Christ tried to renew in the people in his own teaching, and John the Baptist as well. And we'll talk more about that later in this session. We're in the sixth session on what uh, has been affectionately labeled the Beasties, but it's our Mark of the Beast tour, detailed study. And we're going to start it, as I said, with Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. A lot of people think about God, but it's not the real God. It's a God that they have made up and they worship. But the real God is true knowledge of God. God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Because they would not accept and see the true image of God, which we see with the Pharisees, who did not want to recognize Christ. And Jesus says, because you say you see, your sin remains. Because they were not in a humble, repenting mode. They were in a self-righteous mode. They didn't want to think that what they were doing was wrong. They were not willing to change. You see, that the flexibility of society to change was dependent upon their humility, willing to realize that those things which they had become dependent on were in error. And because of that, they could not change, and they eventually were destroyed. Christ did not destroy them. They destroyed themselves because they refused to see the truth. This same problem faces the world today. So in verse 29, we see, Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, envying one another. The keeping up with the Joneses mentality that we have today, the consumerism mentality we have today, the desire for benefits, even though we are getting them from a bankrupt government who will only provide those benefits by borrowing from the future of your children is covetous. This is wicked. This this fornication, this one-purse attitude, this progressive socialism is unrighteous. And anyone who wants to go that way is not retaining the knowledge of God. They are filled with unrighteousness and fornication and wickedness, but they think this is goodly. They are covetous of their neighbor's goods through the agency of the civil governments they have created for themselves. And they maliciously take away from their neighbor so that they can have benefits. Because they are full of envy. Even to the point where people die, suicides die. Most of the Americans fighting overseas supposedly to keep you secure are killing themselves. More than the enemy is killing them. Because of the conditions in which they are brought there. The meaningless lack of purpose, the lack of moral integrity, 
that they are surrounded by brings them into despair. Where the chief cause of many of the soldiers' deaths is suicide. People want to debate. They want to argue. They don't want to come to the knowledge of the truth. Deceit and malignity and whisperers. They go behind people's backs. They can't sit and talk about these things openly in a room without wanting to argue and beat and prove that they are right. That's what they want. They don't want to know what is right. They want to imagine themselves as right. And they end up being, as it says in verse 30, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient even to their own parents, disobedient to their own government. The government that supplies them with the benefits, they will cheat that government. They don't love the government of God, the ways of Christ. They don't even know them. And part of that is because their ministers are ear ticklers. Without understanding covenant breakers, that's back to that, they make agreements with the government to get benefits and then they cheat the government out of what they owe the government. Without natural affections, implacable, unmerciful. Now this is Paul talking to the Romans, who knowing the judgment of God that they would commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Now, he's, he's pointing this out to them and telling them in the next verse, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest does the same thing. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to the truth Against them which commit such things. So, what's Paul talking about to them? What, what's he trying to say? He says, Thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them that do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? No. No matter if you imagine yourself to be saved or not, if you are still conducting your life in these ways that I've talked about just now, you are in need of repentance. And he goes on to say, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness, the forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. The thing is, is we need to repent of the ways that we are because we are following the ways of Rome. And that's really going to be a theme that I'm going to constantly return to when we talk about this mark of the beast and what it really means and And set the scenes. And we're going to actually go back a little bit more in history than we've done in the other five sessions. But to give you this overall perspective, it's what I've started calling walking around the elephant. This this whole situation, this worldwide situation, this worldwide history of mankind in his rise and decline and and his sin nature and in his repentant nature is a huge puzzle. Everybody has little pieces of it, and they cling to those pieces like religious artifacts. But they need to step back and walk around the elephant, get a good picture of the front and the back and the underside and how this thing works. Because you are being led astray by every doctrine that comes along, saying, oh, look here, look here. Oh, look at this. Oh, this prophecy here. Jordan Maxwell, and I I hate to mention names, but 
Might as well, somebody wrote me about some of the stuff he says. And you can listen to the guy. And he goes and he is connecting words all the time. He's brilliant. He has huge amounts of facts and information memorized. And he makes whole arguments based on association of sounds of words even. Not even their meanings. And sometimes there is a lot of truth in what he says. But he connects the puzzle like Picasso's cubist and... uh, unrealistic painting. Picasso used to paint paintings that were just fabulous. Landscapes and and people that were just very realistic. But then he got into all these bizarre pictures and everybody said, oh, that's art. (laughs) But uh, reality is, is that he was reinventing. He was, he was distorting things, but it sold. So, you know, who was he to argue? But the reality is that's what we do. We reinvent the truth. And then we believe in that reinvented truth, which is called a lie. It has a lot of truth to it. And, you know, you listen to him and he gives you no solution. No solution whatsoever. Just, it's it's fear-based, it's conspiracy-based, it feeds your imagination, but it does not really come to a knowledge of the truth. This is forever studying and never coming to a full knowledge of the truth. You know, Paul takes the same message to the Corinthians, one of the people that actually survived the Punic Wars, because they were more flexible. They did not wall themselves in. Although by this time they had become, been following more of this new Roman deal. Because Rome had a deal at the beginning that brought it to success, and then they got a new deal that became a socialist state. And then they were doomed, because what happens in these socialist states is you decay the foundation of society, which is the family. And that's when Augustus had to run for election as Caesar. He was elected by an electoral college. But the two platforms, and this is what I found amazing, the two platforms that he constantly mentioned in his campaigns was a return to the republic and a restoration of family values. I've actually heard political groups talking about that same thing today. While they do the same errors of Augustus in undermining currency, although he didn't, he didn't take the silver out. It wasn't until Mark Anthony and Cleopatra that that began. But it really began under Nero and undermining the, the money. But by the time you get to a government that can do that, you've already gone way down the path away from that which makes society a stronger and safer place. They promise you security, but you're actually moving away. But anyway, in Second Corinthians twelve twenty, it says, For I fear lest when I come... I shall find you such as I would, and that I shall be found unto you such as ye would not, lest there be debates, envies, wrath, stripes, backbiting, whispering, swelling, tumults, you know, this uh, kind of rioting commotion. And what are the people debating over? Doctrines that are not convenient, that don't create a convenience in your society. They, they want to believe in self-righteous, self-serving doctrines rather than actually pure religion, which is simple. 
if your society does not voluntarily take care of the needy of your society through faith, hope, and charity, which Paul emphasizes charity, and charity being love, not charity being giving away all your stuff, because he says if you give away all your stuff to the poor and have not charity, what the heck? How can you do that? It's not about giving everything away. It's about actually trying to strengthen the poor in righteousness. This is the foundation of a society. And this is what breaks down. And this is what brings the mark of the beast about. It's not some sort of unattachable chip or number that somebody's going to stamp on your forehead. It's the loss of a passion for righteousness. A passion that compels you to tend to the weightier matters that Christ listed off. And you all know those weightier matters. Like I've said many times, I've seen pastors, whole room full of pastors, none of them could list off what Jesus listed off as the weightier matters. Had several hundred years of education probably and study of the Bible um, amongst them. They're all over 60, I think, just about, who were in that room. And so you count seven pastors in that room and multiply that times 50 years of study. (laughs) We're talking maybe hundreds of years of reading the Bible. And none of them could list off what Jesus listed off as the weightier matters that the Pharisees were condemned for not attending to. And yet, modern Christians don't attend to them either. Don't even know them. And But I can guarantee you, you can find debate, envying, wrath, strife, backbiting, whispering, swelling, a form of godliness in their churches, but denying the power that Christ gave his people who recognized him as the king, accepted him as the king, got his baptism, cast out of one geopolitical social welfare system and created their own through faith, hope, and charity, meaning faith, hope, and love. In 2 Timothy 3, 1, we say, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemous, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affections. And the list goes on. And we'll tell you what you're supposed to do about those people when you come back to Keys of the Kingdom. And then we're going to start getting into some real meat. Are you ready for meat? Be there. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. And we were reading in uh, Timothy. I was talking about in the last days how people would be losing this natural affection. The natural affection. I mean, you have children thrown into dumpsters. Children thrown into public school. Not too much different. People have no idea what their children are learning in schools. They... They look at the world to the eyes that they were given as they were raised up in the world. And we show over and over again how words have been redefined. Uh, attitudes towards things are redefined. Somebody was just talking. We're not big ones for celebrating Christmas in this house because we know it is a commercial holiday and promoted as a commercial holiday. And it's a, 
it's a feel-good holiday where you, you don't bomb anybody on Christmas Day, but you go back to killing the day after. And so we know that there's a great deal of hypocrisy around it. We don't begrudge anybody else who wants to follow it. And we find it so interesting how today in society, how there's this backlash in public schools and places where you're not even going to be allowed to say Merry Christmas. And my kids weren't raised up hearing me say it just simply because we consider every day to be the Lord's Day. And so we we didn't center our faith around some particular day. We're not keepers of days. Although, you know, we we celebrate the feasts and stuff, but we understand the purposes of those holidays. And the purposes is to uh, bring society together and to create the bonds necessary for a free society. That was why they had those days and those, you know, like... Uh, Feast of Tabernacles and stuff. This was a way to create a communion in a broad society and not become isolated little congregations. And that was the whole purpose. God doesn't need you meeting together. He doesn't. He, he's not so insecure that he needs your prayers and praises. You need to praise his ways, and you do this by following them. But anyway, Paul and, and, and Timothy, we see talking in uh, this chapter 3 of Timothy, 2 Timothy, Without natural affection, truce breakers. That means you make an agreement, but you don't keep it. False accusers. You accuse people without sitting down and asking them, hey, you know, I heard that this is, that you did this. I hear that you're doing that. Is this true? I mean, why are you doing that? It looks like it's bad. You don't sit down with that person. Instead, you go around and tell other people. You're, you're fiercely defend your imaginary faith in Christ. But you're not doing what Christ says. You're despiser of those that are actually doing good sometimes. Traitors, heady, high-minded. Oh, you know, you're, you belong to this church and this. You know, you're a Mormon. You're a Je- Jehovah Witness. You're a Catholic. You're a Lutheran. You're a Protestant. You identify with your gang, not with righteousness. Lovers of pleasures, you want your benefits. You don't care who has to pay for them. Even though you say, well, I paid in, even though it's bankrupt, I still want them, even if it's going to take from my children and my grandchildren. Because I want what I want, and I want it now. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. This is what's going on in your churches. Now, I'm not telling you to leave your churches I'm saying turn around and start seeking righteousness. Start finding out what the gospel was really all about. Because most of you already have the mark of the beast. You're not condemned to hell. It doesn't say that anywhere. And we'll go over that and show you. But you will be tested. You will be tried. And you better get ready. All you guys ever learning, but never coming to this full knowledge of the truth, because you got all these facts and information that you plucked from the tree of knowledge, but you're actually not bearing the fruit of the early church. This is why we talk so much about the early church, what they were doing, because the difference between what they're doing and the modern church is doing is staggering. The modern church has more in common with the Pharisees than they did with early Christendom, and they don't even know it. 
because they don't know the weightier matters. They don't know what Corbin is. They don't know what it means to be covetous. Oh, they'll debate you on it. Actually, they won't debate me on it. <laughs> Most of them back down. They win their debates with me when they don't come and actually talk to me. <laughs> because they they can sit there and say, oh, well, that's not so because of this. And I can show them, well, that's not what that says. This is what it says. And they don't like that. But anyway, we're going to look at a lot of other people's opinions, mostly just to break down the pre-assumptions that you have. That what you think is true is true, because it's, most of what you think is true just ain't so. And so I have to break that down, so I'm showing you that there are other opinions. I'm not saying, when I quote you know men like this, uh, Dr. Charles, I'm not saying he's right in his assumption we're talking about Revelation, preaching a doctrine of celibacy. I don't think it does. I don't think the people understand what that means. They mix the metaphors with reality and the reality with imagination, and they invent their own system. And you will do that same thing. Many of you will do that same thing even with when, I, when I tell you these things that we're going to cover here in probably 20 sessions in order to get walk around the elephant. But those of you who have ears to hear and eyes to see, we will start connecting the dots for you, and the picture will start to present itself. So anyway, in that Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4, he, he goes through some of the same things. I charge, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ, that he's, that's his king, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant in the season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with long-suffering and doctrine. In other words, we need to be exhorting and rebuking one another. And that's what I'm doing. I'm telling you, you guys have turned the wrong way. And so we're going to talk about sound doctrine because Paul goes on to say, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust, their own diverse lust, which we did an 18-part series on that, shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, those ear ticklers. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things endure afflictions to do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry. So anyway, that's what we're going to do. We're going to go through all this stuff. And what we were left off with in the last session was Nero and the Antichrist. And we were talking about this return of Nero, which was foretold for hundreds of years after Nero and his death, because they thought he was going to return. And we gave you a lot of ideas about the the fact that Nero did not actually die, but an actor in his place, a lookalike in his place, died as a part of a conspiracy where he removed what would be a billions of dollars in valuable assets of Rome away, eventually up to Iraq and Iran, and then back over into Europe to his ancestors. And his descendants have now come down to us and are alive and well in this time. But it doesn't matter who they are. 
You know, everybody wants to know, well, who is it? Who is it? I, I do talk to some people and show them what we've discovered or what God has revealed to us. You know, I mean, I was astounded when these, these, this information started coming to me. But it doesn't matter because I know what really is important is what you're supposed to be doing, not what the enemy is doing. What you're supposed to be doing will make the difference with you. So this Nero Redivivus legend that we talked about before, I won't go all into it, is that Nero will return, and he actually hasn't. If you sneak around and find some of the old stuff that I've written years ago, you'll you'll actually maybe start putting the pieces of the puzzle together, although I don't put all this stuff down. I know it's true. I don't know why. I need to know it because God's saying, don't broadcast this. And I'm not. So you'll have to just figure that out. But what I will go into is the Sibylline oracles. It simply means the oracles of the prophetess. And this was around in early Christian prophecy. And it talks about last times. But when the faith of the piety, the faith in piety, perishes, Now, piety is your duty. That's what it means, a performance of your duty. That's what piety originally meant. So when you see this from a translation, you need to understand that's that's the meaning. Because today, piety means something else. That actually is often considered a pompous, pious attitude. But no, piety was actually the performance of your duty. But when faith in piety and performance of your duty perishes from amongst men, And justice is hidden in the world, untrustworthy men living for unholy deeds will commit outrage, wicked and evil deeds. No one will take account of the pious, the duty, but they will even destroy them all by foolishness. Very infantile people rejoicing in outrages. And applying their hand to blood. Now remember, we were not to eat sacrifices that had blood in them. So what are they talking about? Sacrifices that have blood in them. One of the characteristics of sheep, when you kill a sheep, they say that this is, you know, people talk about this. I actually done it. Sheep and goats don't die the same. Goats, when you go to butcher a goat and you do it by slitting the throat, that goat will struggle and scream and holler and make terrible noises. But a sheep will just lay down and you slit his throat and it will just lay there and bleed out. And it won't struggle. It just lays down willingly and you kill it and cut it up for meat to sustain your family. And that's a characteristic that we see, which is why we talk about the Lamb of God who willingly gave his life so that others might live. And, of course, when the sheep herder does this amongst, he has a symbiotic relationship with his herd, that when he does this with his herd, his family is sustained. And then when we have these below zero nights and and uh, the snow is on the ground and there's no feed to be had and the coyotes are lurking around to eat the sheep, The shepherd is out there, seeing to his feed, seeing to his water, seeing to his care. And he can do that because the sheep have sustained him by sacrificing themselves for him. So it's it's a symbiotic relationship. If there were no shepherds, there would be no sheep. The coyotes and the mountain lions would have eaten them all up. 
And what people are in need of today is a good shepherd who will show them the ways of Christ. So anyway, we got that far. And so eating meat with blood in it is eating meat that was not freely given. You see, applying their hands to blood. They're taking their neighbor's sacrifice whether they like it or not. And today they take their children's sacrifice. They actually are putting their, cursing their children with debt by taking benefits from a bankrupt system. Every country in the world is doing this. And the churches are sitting there singing their songs and they're doing nothing about it. The churches used to be the social welfare of the people. But now we don't go to those altars anymore, those living altars that, of those ministers. They send you to the civil altars of the state. To obtain your welfare, your benefits, your rewards. And that is what brings you into the bondage of Egypt. Which Christ and God told us never to return to. At the time of the end, says the prophetess, a leader of Rome will come to Syria, the Middle East. Who will burn the temple of Jerusalem with fire. At the same time, slaughter many men and destroy the great land of the Jews with its broad roads. Broad roads. Remember, broad is the way to destruction. Narrow is the way to salvation. It is also foretold that the world then will know then the wrath of the heavenly God because they will then destroy the blameless tribe of the pious. Then the strife of a war being aroused will come to the west and the fugitives from Rome will also come, brandishing a great spear, having crossed with the Euphrates with many myriads. So what does that all talk about? The end of times, Roman king of tyrants is also called the Persian, a reference to the return of Nero. And so in the process of this Prophecy, which is extra-biblical stuff. And I'm going to go into several extra-biblical stuff to show you the landscape of prophecy at that time. Because what you're seeing when you go read Revelations now, you're reading it in the landscape of the apostate church, who is not doing what it's supposed to be doing. Not doing the simple things that the church was doing in the first century, they don't do anymore. And they have set a landscape in which you are reading Revelation. So, therefore, you will not understand what they're really talking about. So, to go back to the early church, we want to see what the early church was doing. But we want to see the landscape in which it was doing it. And it writes in in this oracle's prophecy. For the Persian will come unto your soil like hail, and he will destroy your land and evil devising men with blood and corpses by terrible altars, a savage-minded mighty man, much-bloodied, raving nonsense, with a full host numerous as sand, bringing destruction on you. Now, altars. You know, the more we talk about this, and you're going to see, talk about the altars of clay and the altars of stone. We talk about the sacrifice of the red heifer, which has nothing to do with the color red and has nothing to do with the heifer. 
And what all these, when you start connecting these metaphors with what they actually mean, then you can start making sense. And we're going to try to bring your conscious level of these things back up so that when you read these things, you can understand what they're really saying. So there's this reference to this latter day Nero. There's a present Nero at that time, which, you know, Nero supposedly escapes, actually escapes to Israel, according to some, even if you want to think that he actually died there and was stabbed by a secretary in the face and and died saying, behold, the actor dies. And then uh, nobody looks for Nero anymore because there he is dead, but nobody can find where all the gold went (laughs) either. Because Nero had actually left town quite a while before. And one of the reasons they were going to arrest Nero, and see, they couldn't, they couldn't, here they're, they've literally about to take custody of Nero. They're not going to kill him as a reprieve because they don't want to see him die. And we've mentioned this before. And as the horsemen come to the gate, they hear the horses at the gate. Supposedly Nero, who is not really Nero, is saying, kill me, kill me. We don't hear him say that. The only ones who heard him say that is the ones who kill him, who say that he begged us to kill him. So how do they kill him? They stab him in the face. <laughs> they stab him a bunch of times. So he's actually still alive when people come up. But he's saying, the actor dieth. It wasn't Nero. I don't believe it was Nero. Now, I can't prove that. Because a lot of historians will say it was. But I think he escaped. And this is why for hundreds of years, they expected the return of Nero. And because prophetesses and... Others talk about the wounding of the Antichrist, the beast, and then it rising up again in the last days. And it isn't so much who the actual individuals are. That's not important. It's the spirit that is rising up. The people are the vessels of that spirit. So what you want to be is the vessel of the Holy Spirit and not eating blood at those terrible altars where savage-minded men, mighty men, men who exercise authority one over the other but call themselves benefactors are providing you with benefits at the blood, at the cost of the blood of your children and grandchildren. Because that's the path you've taken. And you need to take another path. You need to fill yourself with another spirit that will guide your footsteps. That's what you need. You don't need to know the name of the Antichrist. That's not important. That's why it's not written in there, although there's plenty of evidence in there. You need to change your way. You need repentance. And that oracle goes on to say there will come to pass in the last times, the last days, about the waning of the moon, a war, which will throw the world into confusion and be deceptive. And guile, a man who is martyred, will come from the ends of the earth in flights and devising, penetrating schemes in his mind. Schemes. Just like the schemes that Herod the Great brought to Judea. Same principles. Blood will flow up to the bank of deep eddying rivers. Is the blood actually going to get that deep? They're talking about this scheme that's going to come. 
every land and conquer all and consider all things more wisely. And he, he will destroy every land, it says. How does he do that? It's done already. Every land is in debt. Every land is taken over by the, the new world order. Oh, we're allowed to have our, you know, TV stations and our, our political parties that make little difference so that we imagine that we're doing something. We, they give us our windmills to fight. But nothing is changing in us. We are actually becoming more and more that weak society that is devoid of the piety that is necessary to maintain society. Then the pietous destruction of war will cease thus and no longer will anyone fight. He's talking about once all the kings and noblemen are destroyed. There's a great destruction they were talking about. And they were talking in this as the last days. Wise people which is left will have peace having experienced evil so that it might later rejoice. We are going to see that evil. Now, what you need to do is divest yourself of that evil and take up the ways of Christ, the real ways of Christ. Not just saying his name with your lips, not with your lips, but be doers of the word. Now, another apocryphal book that we we can talk about, we have a little bit of time, we'll mention it, is the Testimony of the Twelve Patriarchs. And it is an apocryphal book, some say even banned book of the Bible. It wasn't really banned, and the Bible could only be so big. It's never really been adopted by either Jews or Christians, but it's, uh, and it, to some degree, there is some fragmentariness to it because of the fact that some of it has been damaged. But uh, the text is made up of all the commands of the twelve dying sons of Jacob. And it's kind of interesting, Dr. R.H. Charles says, in his scholarly work, that it is uh, is full of these ethical teachings. But he actually even goes on to say that St. Paul appears to have borrowed so freely from it that it seems as though he must have carried a copy of the Testament with him on his travels. And that's what we're going to take a look at in the next show on Keys of the Kingdom and see how this correlates to setting that landscape in which Revelations was written, so that we will understand Revelations in the context of history and the authors of that day, and not in the imaginations of the modern church, who are often prophets for profit. But anyway, we'll do this next time on Keys of the Kingdom. Until then, may peace be upon your house, and may God be with you. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.
Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God in relationship to Revelations. And what we've been doing is setting the scene at the time of Christ and the time of the early church, and what was the literature that was being circulated about at that time. And some of it stems way back to ancient times, but we have some of these documents still. They were not included in the Bible. Bible was pretty big. You gotta remember those Bibles were being handwritten at the time. Eusebius was, uh, paid by Constantine to put 50 Bibles together, and there was no Bible until he did it. And he decided, well, we'll take this book, and this book, and this book, and we won't take that book, and that book, and that book. And we'll put them in. And so he took some of the Torah and the Pentateuch, and then he took, uh, some of the Gospels. And today we have these books passed down to us, and they are very valuable books, but it doesn't mean that we should not read any other writings of the time. By reading other writings of the time, all kinds of writings, government writings, poetry, whatever, we learn more about the language. We learn more about how words are used and often misused today. When I first began to discover that words in the Bible in the New Testament, Greek words in the New Testament, could be translated 5, 10, 15 different ways, and that sometimes five or more different Greek words were all translated into the same exact English word, I realized that translators had tremendous power to alter the way in which we understand the Gospels. And now today, when we look at the Gospels, we look at them through the eyes of the modern church. And yet, we look around and we see the world going awry. And 40,000 different denominations of churches. What is the story? There's one church, Christ established. And it's up to us, and I'm not going to say it's this church or that church, or this denomination or that denomination. It's those who conform to Christ. I don't care what denomination you think you belong to. We don't want you to belong to another denomination. We want you to belong to Christ. We want you to understand what Christ wanted you to do. And we want you to be a part of that in what you are doing on a day-to-day basis. Because it's there is where you are the doers of the Word. It's there where you begin to understand the truth that Christ brought us to understand. And words have led us astray. I, I've, I've quoted many times before uh, Lewis Carroll's uh, Through the Looking Glass, where Humpty Dumpty is saying, when I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said, in a rather scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty, which is to be master? That's all. And that's the truth. That if you control the definition of words, you control the minds of the people. If you control their minds, you control the people. And that's where we're at today, is that the minds of the people are controlled by what they think words mean. 
And one of the reasons why they have difficulty in understanding what words mean is they don't understand history. If you will not learn from history, you will be doomed to repeat it. And that's what's happening. We are following in the footsteps of the Pharisees, not the footsteps of Christ. And we need to turn around and repent. So anyway, I mentioned in the last show, we're now in in session six, or session seven. (laughs) I'm not even sure what seven we're in now. Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs was an apocryphal book, not used by necessarily Jews or Christians, but it, it survived all those times, so it has some reaches back into history. And this Dr. R.H. Charles, who I've mentioned before, says in his scholarly work that it is an ethical teaching, it has achieved real immortality by influencing the thoughts and dictions of the writers of the New Testament. And even those of our Lord. So he's saying that that this book was being quoted by the apostles. He even says St. Paul appears to have borrowed so freely from it that it seems as though he must have carried a copy of the Testament with him on his travels. So even though it's not in the Bible, actually a lot of it is in the Bible because of the fact that the authors that were writing the Bible had been reading. This is the kind of stuff they were reading. And in chapter 5, we see the, uh, observe the Lord's commandments, then my children, and keep his laws. Avoid wrath and hate and lying, in order that the Lord may dwell among you. And Belier may flee from you. Belier. Bel, uh, Balaam, and, you know, this heir of the Nicolaitans, and the heir of Balaam. Same thing. Those of you who've looked at our studies on that, the Nicolaitans and Balaam are the same. Those are just, one's a Hebrew word, one's a Greek word. That is means conquered people. What conquers us? Our lust. Our diverse lust. Our covetousness. That's what conquers us. The greatest destroyer is the freedom of the givers of gifts, gratuities, and benefits that we lust after. The men who exercise authority one over the other that Christ said we were not to be like. Those are the ones who steal your freedom away from you. Because you give it freely. Because you are tempted by their offerings. He goes on to say, For I know that in the last days you will defect from the Lord. You may still say, Lord, Lord, with your lips, but you've defected in your doings. You will be offended at Levi, the revolt against Judah, but you will not prevail over them. And this is the story that we see. If you go on in the uh, fourth, the Testament of Judah, concerning the fortitude and love of money. And for an occasion, we, we hear the love of money is the root of all evil. The love of money. That's actually a Greek metaphor for covetousness. There's nothing wrong with money. Money is just a dead object. You know, a stack of gold coins or a stack of silver coins. It's just minerals that somebody pulled out of the earth and refined. But covetousness, that's what that word really means. Covetousness. That's something else. And he talks about, for I have read also the book of Enoch, the righteous. What evils you shall do in the last days. Take heed, therefore, my children, of fornication and love of money. Covetousness. Fornication is making agreements with unbelievers. Having an intimate relationship with unbelievers. It's not always sexual. It has to do with binding yourself 
He goes on to say, Hearken to Judah your father, for these things do withdraw you from the law of God. They draw you away from... Covetousness draws you away from the law of God. Remember, sacrifice, free will offerings, to sustain the needy of your society, that word comes, that free will offerings, comes from the word that means to draw near, meaning draw near the laws of God. So the altars of your society upon which you sacrifice for the care of the needy of your society, for the love of the needy of your society, will either draw you near or draw you away from the law of God. If it's done by free will offerings, it draws you near. If it's done by compelled offerings, it will draw you away. And he goes on to say, the blind, the understanding of the soul, blind the understanding of the soul and teach arrogance and suffer not a man to have compassion upon his neighbor. That's why you have people raped in the streets and nobody comes to help. That's why you have robberies where people pull their shades and don't look out. I didn't see anything because their compassion for their neighbor is gone because it's not my job. It's somebody else's job. This is this is what's destroying society. If you want to save society, you have to change your ways. You have to go back to a way in a time where you take care of the need of your society through faith, hope, and charity. Will everybody be willing to go? No. But those of you who are willing to go that direction need to start turning around and gathering together for that purpose of helping others, not simply to save yourself. He goes on to say, they rob his soul of all goodness and bind him in toils and troubles. Now, that toils and troubles, we'll see that. The original words for toils and troubles in Revelations. And he's saying it binds him to toils and troubles because of this fornication and covetousness. Binds him. Robs his soul of goodness and his compassion for his neighbor, which weakens society. And makes tyrants more powerful. And take away his sleep and devour his flesh. Devour his flesh. Take a bite out of one another. They talk about this in Old and New Testament. Hinder the sacrifice of God. Hinder the sacrifice of God. What is that? The sacrifice of God is when you take care of the needy of your society. The health, education, and welfare. The faith, emergency, ministry, auxiliary. Through faith, hope, and charity. And the perfect law of liberty. When you do that, there is salvation. There is drawing near God. When you don't do that, I don't care how much singing you do, how much waving your hands over your head you do, how many times you say you love Jesus, how many times you you say that repeated your prayers, it will count as nothing. You hinder the sacrifice of God. He remembers not blessings. He hearkens not to the prophets when he speaks and he vexed. At the word of goodliness for one who serves to passions, one who serves to passions, contrary to the commandments of God, cannot obey God. Because they have blinded his soul. And he walks in the daytime as in the night. What is he talking about? Two passions contrary to the commandments. Cannot serve two masters. One that is contrary to each other. My children, the love of money, covetousness, leads to idols. It will make you loyal to those that provide you with benefits so that you will not 
stand against unrighteousness. It will weaken your society. It will weaken the bonds of community. Because when led astray through this covetousness, men make mention of those who are no gods. Got to obey the gods many of the world. Not righteousness. Not the weightier matters. And it causes him who has it to fall into madness, craziness, insane things. You look around, you see people deciding it and voting in your societies, whichever societies you live in, Australia, Canada, and you say, are they crazy? They're voting for more benefits and we're already bankrupt. Madness. Yes, madness. And it's not your government is doing this, it's the people next door to you. Because they don't care. They want to eat meat, even if it has your blood in it, or the blood of your children in it. For the sake of their covetousness, for the sake of covetousness, I lost my children, he writes. Well, how does that happen? You want the benefits. You want the deductions. And so you lay your children upon those civil altars. Now, some of you understand how far this reaches and are beginning to want to change. Because you've gone this pitiful and and merciless way. But it's a process. That change is a process. And it is not done to save yourself. It must be done to save others. Christ did not come to save himself. He came to save others. This is the spirit in which you must walk. And this is the message that we see throughout this this, uh, testament that was around. and, And some scholars say clearly... The apostles were reading and were even quoting from and even suggest that uh, Christ was quoting from them. And we need to take a look at those things so that we understand this whole landscape where they keep coming back to these same principles over and over again. But the modern church is completely void of them. They say, oh, no, go to the benefactors who exercise authority one over the other. And see where that gets you. But anyway, I've got other notes here, but I've already talked about it a great deal about who is this son of Nero that is coming back and all that stuff. But again, that's not important. It's not important who he is. What's important is that you draw near the Spirit of God and are filled with the Spirit of God. And you do that by the practice of pure religion, which is taking care of the needy of your society through faith, hope, and charity. This is the ultimate prepper's solution. You're going to need that spirit moving in a network of people that you're connected with, not only in your local area, but all over the world. Because in that spirit, in that nervous system of community, as spread out as you are, is born the Spirit of Christ in you and amongst you. The kingdom of heaven is amongst you. But what I see in the churches is backbiting and gossiping and whispering and envy and pride of your personal religions. Oh, they have the form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Because they're not doing the job that the early church considered from day one was their job. The daily ministration. 
of the widows and orphans of society. They would not go to the civil altars of those men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority because Christ forbade them to go that way. Yet the modern church goes that way all the time because the modern church has more in common with the Pharisees than they do with Christ. They take his name in vain. Now that you're hearing it, you can change. Start gathering together. Join us on the Living Network. Help us find the other lost sheep who want to go the ways of Christ and become the ultimate prepper by preparing not to save yourself but to save others. Now, there was a character back at this time, around 60 A.D., 61 A.D., Bodicia, or Bodicia, was the queen of the British Isles. Now, we're changing pace here. And we're going to walk around the landscape to see what was going on in other places, what was happening. Many people believe that Paul went to Great Britain, that Paul's relatives actually were stationed in Great Britain, his Roman relatives. His half-brother and and, uh, his half-brother's son were stationed in Great Britain and did some very interesting things. Some of the artifacts that have still come down to us in the age appear to have their names written on them in stone. So they were there. So they were around, and and it was considered some of these were part of charitable actions where they took money out of their own pocket to take care of the needy of society. This is why they were willing to accept the gospel, because that's what the gospel was really all about. So, anyway, Boudica was this woman. And we're going to talk about how Rome worked here. Not just about her herself, but how, how Rome expanded its power. Because that principle is is still going on today. Now, remember always that Rome lasted for almost 700 years altogether, or maybe 800, depending on where you're counting from. 500 years before Christ, Rome was a republic. At the time of Christ, it was an imperial, almost federal-like world order with satellite states all around it. And... You know, it had become an indirect democracy and then an indirect social democracy. It was basically, they were social democrats. (laughs) That's what they were. And that's why so many people were on this welfare. Because Rome used to, welfare used to be all free will offerings. And that strengthened community. But when it became civil offerings, it weakened community. But it gave rise to condition, an environment in which tyrants could rise up. This is always the way it is. It's always the way it works. So anyway, over there in Great Britain, they still had more semblances of that original system, but they were, they had kings, but they didn't have the same kind of power. They didn't have a structure to force allegiance. And so there was still a memory of the way it used to be with Rome. And Romans loved this, those that studied history. Many of them, not all Romans. Some Romans were going this other progressive socialist way because it meant more power for the government and more benefits for the people. But others realized that what made their society stronger was a system based on the perfect law of liberty. But liberty could be remembered in Great Britain. Anyway, Bodica's husband, which has a a name, Prasatagus, was a ruler of the Asini tribe. And it was normal Roman practice to allow allied kingdoms their independence only for the lifetime of their client king. This is the way they operated. They come in and deal with a king who's more concerned about himself than his progeny or the children of his people. 
and they would then make an agreement to leave his kingdom intact. As an example, I'll give you in Bithynia and Galatia, uh, which are, you know, Galatia mentioned in the Bible, were incorporated into the empire in just that way. Roman law also allowed inheritance only through the male line. So that, you know, if you go back to Great Britain, to this uh, Presidicus, when he died, his right to be king would only pass down through a male line, according to Roman tradition. That idea of passing down through the female line remained in Great Britain even to this day. But the Romans, and if you go over to the Normans, they didn't. And they fought wars over this. Because they would only count the male line in France. And they would count the female line in Great Britain. So this was this was going on. History repeats itself, folks. <laughs> so Rome had this different opinion of inheritance. Well, Batica had two daughters. She didn't have sons. And uh, so, anyway, when he died, he wanted to extend this inheritance, not only past his life, but on to his wife and to his daughters. But, of course, when his daughters died, it wouldn't exist anymore. And so, there was going to be this arguable issue in court as to whether Bodica and her two daughters could inherit the kingdom and remain as this satellite state still collecting their taxes. Again, these are this is a society that was moving over and tempted by turning their people into their own bread to sustain them rather than serve the people. Christ was tempted by this. This was a temptation that the devil brought to him. If you do it my way, he says, I will make all these people serve you. And Jesus wouldn't go that way. But Unfortunately, uh, Prasutagus didn't see it that way. <laughs> he said, I will accept the Rome as long as I get to be king during my lifetime, and I want my children to get it too. But Roman law didn't permit that. So anyway, what happened was Roman law allowed inheritance only through this male line, so that when he died, attempts to preserve his line were ignored, and his kingdom was annexed, as if it had been conquered. His lands and property were confiscated and nobles treated like slaves. His nobles, the men he appointed from the top down. And we're going to talk about this Bodica and Tacitus and what really happened and why it happened because it's happening again today. History is repeating itself on a family-by-family basis. So we'll be right back to Keys of the Kingdom and take a look at this. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm going to be talking to you a little bit about Botica, but let's take a little sidetrack here over to Second Peter and around 2.13, 2.14. And it says, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness. It talks about somebody talking about their own corruption, receiving the reward of unrighteousness, having eyes full of adultery. Again, adultery, fornication. These things have to do with connections, agreements that you're having because you're committing adultery. You're adulterating the body of Christ because you're making agreements with unbelievers. 
You're making agreements with them, which we're not supposed to be doing, and Paul talks about that. And that cannot cease from sin. What sin? The sin of covetousness. Beguiling unstable souls and hearts they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. In other words, because of the desire for benefits from a bankrupt system, they curse their children with debt. Done every day today. In almost every church, it's completely excused. It says it's okay to do that because you love Jesus. But I'm telling you, you don't love Jesus if you think that's okay. And Peter's saying the same thing. Which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray following the ways of Balaam, the son of Bozer, and who love the wages, the benefits of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity by the dumbass speaking with man's voice, forbade the madness. Remember, we talked about madness of the prophets. Remember? We're reading that extra-biblical prophet that talks about this madness that had to do with covetousness and binding the people. You see, this is all about the keys of the kingdom. What you bind on earth is bound in heaven. You're binding yourself to the ways of Satan. Okay, these are wells without water, clouds that carried with a tempest to whom the midst of darkness is reserved forever. Okay, this error of Balaam, the error of Nicolaitans, which they will talk about in Revelations, that doctrine of the Nicolaitans, that has to do with this fornication, that it's okay to eat meat that is given to idols. In other words, eat the, the benefits of these civil altars, which they also talk about in these extra-prophetic, as well as once you understand what those altars are for, now you, you, the elephant comes into focus, and you start realizing what's happening. It says, for when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they, they allure you through the lust of the flesh, through those diverse lusts, through much wantonness, because you desire these benefits. Those that were clean escape from them who live in error. Who, what error? The error of Balaam, the error of the Nicolaitans. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, the same is he brought into bondage. And after they have escaped the pollution of the world, the world meaning the constitutional order and system of government, the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, and the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. It's better that they have not known at all. But anyway, we won't go into all that, but this is where he gets into the pig in the mire, wallowing in the mire, and this is where we're at. This is where we've gone. And I was going to give you the example of Bodica and her husband, and her husband made this deal with Rome that the Romans could come in and my people will do what you say and and all this stuff. And it was actually pretty beneficial. They were building cities and they were paying people. They weren't flogging people or anything like that. They always come in promising them a lot of good stuff. And there were good Romans that came along and, and tried to show people the ways of ancient Rome. But there was this other party, this other practice in Rome, which was moving towards this social democracy where the leaders of Rome were going to need tribute because the leaders of Rome are becoming the fathers of these societies. But 
Prasutagus agreed to this, just like the Galatians and the Bithynians. They agreed to this as long as they could keep their kingdom. They only cared about their kingdom. And, of course, their immediate wife and children. But he only had daughters. And Rome didn't recognize female heirs. And so, when he died, according to Tacitus, Bodica was flogged and her daughters were raped. Cassio Danio says the Roman financiers, including Seneca the Younger, chose this time to call in their loans. Loans to what? To these leaders. Against what? The tribute they would collect from their people. They'd been living high on the hog. They'd borrowed money from these international bankers, from the World Bank, like Ephesus. They had borrowed money, and they'd, they had not kept the Sabbath. Sabbath isn't, isn't about a day. It's about borrowing money. Work six days and take your day off. Not take your day off and owe six days of work. That's what it's about, believe it or not. You guys all think you're keeping the Sabbath and you're in debt. You haven't kept the Sabbath. Another whole story. We won't get into all that now. But does uh, single out the Roman procurator, Catus, you can say this several different ways, Diasianus, it's almost like the word deacon, for criticism for his avarice. Anyway, he, uh, this Prasotagus had borrowed huge amounts of money from the Romans so that he could live high on the hog and build palaces like the Romans, etc., and he was liable for the debt. And they tried to collect that debt when he died. And they didn't honor his wife as heir to the throne because they didn't see that. This is where every family in America is at today. And in Australia and New Zealand and all these other countries. When a child is born in New Zealand, he's $45,000 in debt at birth. <laughs> That's just the way it is. In the same way in all these other countries, everybody's in debt. Every child is born in debt. Because we've cursed our children with this debt. Because we've been, this isn't the government spending all this money. It's you. If you were all turning around and saying, I'm not going to ask the government for any more benefits. I'm going to glean in the field at night amongst my community for the benefits that I may need. I'm going to try to make it on my own. And if I can't, if I fall down, if I get injured, if I can't stand on my own two feet. I'm going to ask for free will offerings or I'm just going to do without. If we had that courage, we would be a free nation today in every country of the world. But people will not turn around. They will not repent. Those of you who will and start coming together with as much interest in saving your neighbor as you are in saving yourself and saving your neighbor's children as you are in saving your own children, then you would be the ultimate prepper because you would be building up the treasures of the kingdom in your community. Anyway, I could go on uh, further with that, but uh, that's what's happening. I'm looking at my notes, but I don't want to reveal too much here. (laughs) Let's go on down to another section, because we're not going to talk about that. I'm not going to reveal who the Antichrist is or anything, because it's not important. Again, I'm telling you, what's important is that you... Align yourself with Christ. That's what's important. And then you will know what to do, and you will know when you see it what to do, and you will have the means by which to do it because you will have already created the bonds of the kingdom by loving one another. Any Roman historian Tacitus wrote, 
wonder if I should back up. 64 AD, that fire broke out in that circus mechanism, spread rapidly, and in nine days destroyed two-thirds of the city of Rome. Nero, emperor at the time, blamed the Christians. Okay, and Tacitus wrote about that. Nero proceeded with his usual artifice. He found a set of uh, profligates and abandoned wretches who were induced to confess themselves guilty and on the evidence of such men, a number of Christians were convicted. They were put to death with exquisite cruelty, he writes, and added mockery to derision. Some were covered with skins uh, of wild beasts and left to be devoured by dogs. Others were nailed to crosses. Numbers were then burned alive. Many covered inflammable matter were set afire to serve as torches during the night. This, when you do it in this macabre way, then they can't go back and say, hey, I should have never done this. I should have never accused the Christians. Because they have to keep justifying, well, the Christians must have deserved it. Because we've already punished them. And you would have to humble yourself and admit you had done wrong. And they don't want to do that. So it's very important that you have these you demonize uh, a group of people. You demonize them in the minds of the public. And then you do something, you know, like you put them to death almost immediately. And then nobody wants to go back and revisit that because they find out, wait a minute, that guy is innocent. That guy didn't do it. That guy didn't burn the Reichstag or, or blow up this building or whatever. Then, then we murdered an innocent man. And somebody else is the guilty. And we can't go there. So it's very important that there there be this kind of overwhelming public opinion and they and Nero needed it because the public opinion you read a number of historians were beginning to suspect that this was a false flag created by Nero who wanted to renew but then he realized he'd gone too far in many ways and he just figured I gotta bug out, I gotta get out of town. And so he put this this guy up there to be in his stead and another foolish actor and his behavior and his conversation was so erratic they figured we we've got to we got to arrest this guy, and then his secretary killed him, and Nero got away. But I'm sure historians will disagree with that. But that's okay. Edward Gibbons, in his classical The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, tells us that in the tenth year of the reign of Nero, the capital of the empire was afflicted by this fire, and he goes through the whole description of it, and. He talks about the monuments of the Grecian art and Roman virtues and trophies of the Punic uh, and Gaelic wars. And most of the holy temples and most of the splendid palaces were involved in one common destruction of the 14 regions and quarters of this fire. So this is a huge thing. It's a huge fire. Devastated lots of people. This is... And as I go back and I say, you know, that where they're trying to find revelation, you've got to go back and listen to the sessions one, two, and three to realize that this talk about Nero being this antichrist fits like a glove. But it is very clear that from the very beginning they said that we would be revisited not only by the spirit of Nero and another leader, but the actual blood of Nero would be pumping in his veins. Now, I don't know. I can't prove that. But I can see the things of the Spirit. And I see that Spirit rising up in here. And so anyway, we're going to go and study the mark.
we're going to start getting into that. And it's going to take quite a few shows to get through this. But I've got a detailed study of the Mark of the Beast on the website at His Holy Church, and you can download that. We may add to it more, but it's it's pretty detailed, enough so that you can get a pretty good, clear picture of things. And we're going to go through that and give you a new look, an iconoclastic look at this whole idea of the Mark of the Beast. And we're going to get into the Mark of God and find out what that is. Because that's what you want. You want the Mark of God. You don't want to just avoid the Mark of the Beast. You want to obtain the Mark of God. Because they talk about the Mark of God, too. And you need to know what that looks like and what that how that's recognized so you can see, well, I need to make a place in me for the Mark of God. And the way you do that is repentance and forgiveness of others. So anyway, we begin with this. Rome was not an anarchy. Rome was an organized government. It wasn't an anarchy even from the beginning, even though they had no emperors for the first 500 years. The once free society, which had risen to a state of prominence in the Mediterranean with its voluntary welfare system and locally supported militias, became an authoritarian benefactor, which led to tyranny and despotism bankruptcy and destruction, and it altered the nature of society itself in a negative way. Wealth steadily uh, seduced an industrious people into an apathetic welfare state. With growing systems of social benefits came tax burdens upon the rich, which shifted to the craftsmen and laborers because the taxes were controlled by a centralized government who could be bought off, who wanted more and more power, more and more influence, which the rich could provide. And so, therefore, it's like in England when they they were going to raise the tax on the rich, and all the people were for it, except for the rich. They did it, and the following year, the rich paid less taxes, even though their taxes were raised, because they raised it in a way where they got the political favor of the people, but in reality, the rich just restructured and paid less taxes and made themselves, you know, the enemy of the poor and the poor the enemy of the rich. They were coveting one another's goods. And the middle class is caught in between and they're the ones who usually pay the price. And when the middle class is gone, freedom is gone. You have the choice of mob or totalitarianism. The middle class is what really supports society. Together, they all brought a debasement to the social morals. And the love of wealth, comfort, and security replaced the love of simplicity, service, and sacrifice. You look at it today. The the, the morals of society are decaying rapidly. And you think that that is something we need to change. But it is the consequences of a society that is based on covetousness coveting their neighbor's goods for their personal benefit. Many societies became dependent upon this elaborate system of taxation and social welfare. In Judea, there was the Gabi uh, tax collectors, and I'll quote here, uh, collected ground, income, poll taxes, while the Mokas collected duties upon imports and exports on all that was bought and sold, sales tax, They had invented taxes that reached into life of almost everyone. There were taxes based on the number of axles, wheels, and pack animals, pedestrians, the use of the roads, highways, 
on admissions to markets, on carriers and bridges, ships and keys, uh, crossing rivers on dams or uh, on licenses to do any kind of activity. In short, on such variety of objects that even the research of modern scholars has not been able to identify all the names of these taxes. Now, that's actually from the life and times of Jesus the Messiah, and that was in chapter 3. So, you can see that this idea of collecting taxes it just became pandemic in the Roman Empire. But also welfare was pandemic in the Roman Empire. Like I said, half of the people were on welfare. It says that they not only had to collect these taxes, but they had to keep track of who had paid and who had not, as well as who was a taxpayer and who was exempt or excluded. Among the slaves and citizens and residents, there were more than one status. They had many ways to keep track of slaves and freemen as well as who had paid and who was still owing on this myriad of taxes and fees and tariffs, and including interests and penalties. They needed lots of scribes. This is what scribes means. It means accountants. And they were needing those heavily in Judea at that time because they were following the Roman model. Both Greeks and Romans used uh, small framed boards filled with wax or clay with a thin coating of this dark wax was used for brief and short-term notation, scratching letters and numbers in the soft wax with a stylus so that the light-colored backing would show through this dark wax. And the tablets were sometimes linked together with rings, which was called a codex. And some of those have actually even survived. Some of those codexes, not necessarily the wax ones. Longer documents were written on paper, which was called papyrus. But they didn't last as well. And they would be glued together into rolls, you know, about 15 to 40 feet long. And those were called volume or volumen. And uh, contracts might be actually etched in wet clay with a quill, a marker, and a seal. And... And the parties would press in their signatures. And after drying, they would be stored in the temple. This clay would be stored in the temple. The ancient method of record keeping was widely accepted in Ephesus. And it goes back to Babylon itself. And some of those have been unearthed and been a great source of knowledge of how those cultures operated. But this is where terms like the idea of breaking a contract comes from. Because... When the terms of the contract were fulfilled, you could actually break the clay tablet and the contract was over with. Loans of indebtedness was done this way. Usury sometimes took advantage of this more permanent form, recording, keeping solemnized by seals and marks in this clay and were then filed in the temples. Those contracts were unbreakable because they were sealed in this hard clay. And sometimes, like I said, the clay was even fired to keep them so that they were long-term. You owed this forever. (laughs) Uh, Slaves in the marketplace were also given these dried clay tablets that they would wear around their neck. And we have some pictures of that on the website. It was artist renditions of the pictures. But they've existed. They found them. Where they would have etched on there the owners and the the identifiers of that particular slave and sometimes maybe his talents, etc., 
And this was part of the deal that you would be sold. It's, we still sell people today. If you're a major football player, baseball player, you're sold to this team or that team. Your contract is sold. And your contract goes with you. We don't do it out of clay tablets anymore. But the same idea in that society was very common. And it was based on these contracts. And the reason I'm mentioning all this is because of this term that we see in the Bible that's translated Mark is from this term karagma, which comes from the karax, which is this reference to the stylus that is etching in this clay or wax or what have you. A karagma is well attested to have been an imperial seal of the Roman Empire used on official documents during the 1st and 2nd century. They actually called it a karagma. Their karagma would identify a status or an occupation or a use of a particular person. And it might be made out of clay. It might be made out of stone, you know, where they carved it in the stone. Remember, when Herod was baptizing the people into the kingdom of God, that's right, Herod was doing this, in his new deal socialist system of welfare where you signed up, you had to pay in a small amount, but everybody had to pay in a small amount, and they would take care of the widows and orphans in the daily ministration of the needy of society and pure religion. Except it wasn't pure religion anymore because it was spotted by the world, the men who exercised authority, the contracts, not by charity, not by love, but by force. This was brought in by Herod the Great and sanctioned by the Sanhedrin of its day. And this was called Corbin. But it was the Corbin of the Pharisee, because they had Corbin way back in the Old Testament, but it was free will offerings before, under the new system, it would be compelled offerings. But everybody would have to pay their share, so the burden wouldn't fall on any one person. But it was based on force, not charity. Not, you have two coats, share with one. It was based on, you have two coats, the government takes one. And then they distribute it. And in order to keep track of this, they were going to need karagmas, stamps or badges, imprinted. That's what the word actually means, to identify you. And Herod had that stone, white stones. Rome had clay tablets. And you've got something today to identify you as a beneficiary of the same Corbin that Herod brought to Judea. And we'll tell you more about this next time on Keys to the Kingdom. God bless and peace be upon your house. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.